left center, deep, gone, Brewers lead it. And a swing and a miss, he struck him out. Down the line, and that's the ball game. Hey, Brewers fans, welcome to episode five of Brewers Unfiltered. I'm Brad Ford. I'm back from a short leave, and I'm thrilled to be back with Adam McAlvey and Tim Dillard. Adam, thanks for covering as host, and Tim... Now that I'm back and it's my first time as a working dad, I'm going to need some advice because I don't know how you handled being a baseball player and a dad. This is rough. I would, Tim has like 12 kids, too. So. <laughs> well, if you feed them and get them wet, they <laughs> multiply like gremlins. No, I, I, I just don't sleep. Look at me. I mean, I've aged. I'm 22 years old. This is crazy. Wow. No, well, you should. Tim, I got a haircut this week at local stag barbershop, our favorite barbershop in Milwaukee, and uh, boss lady Jess wants you to come into the barbershop. Ooh. So I said I would mention it. So this is me mentioning it. Yeah. But you didn't tell me that before we hit record. So no, I wanted it to be on the pod. Oh, it's a surprise. Well, this is my surprise no, face. Yeah. Audio, anyway, audio we're trampling only. over Brad's return and we should say congratulations <laughs> to Brad for no, no congratulations necessary. Cause so far I feel like I'm struggling. I'm in a slump is what I'm in. I came in, we were supposed to start about 15 minutes ago Adam was uh, the potential holdup because he's in like the roughest travel day of the year where he travels back into Milwaukee, then travels to another city immediately. And he was supposed to be the one where I was like, okay, we'll make time for him because traveling can be rough. He's getting in in the morning. And here I am. I'm in Milwaukee getting set and I'm just fumbling around. I don't have my adapter to put my microphone on the mic stand. I don't have my headphones I'm just getting everything together last minute, and well, that, I did not those are accommodate. Those no longer the most important things, I would say. No, it's sleep. I, I mean, keeping well, a child alive. Well, I was going to say keeping this baby alive. <laughs> yes. Keep, but That's sleep. like rule number I mean, one. keeping a child I, If I were you, I would have just ditched this thing and took a nap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, more important than my baby, who I love very much, and nothing is now more important to me, but more important to the people listening than my baby, is the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club. And they actually had, aside from yesterday, a pretty good week, all things considered. They had a sweep. They had a winning series in Philadelphia. So things are going pretty well for the ball club after a you know rough opening week, especially the first four games. So as we take a look back at some highlights, Adam, why don't you give us your top moment of the last week? Okay, easily. Kyle Schwarber going nuts in the ninth <laughs> inning with Josh Hader on the mound. Epic. I mean, how we're two weeks into the season, something like that. I mean, that is mid-season form on the meltdown. Um, my favorite part of it, though, and maybe Tim can relate, was when the cameras panned over the Brewers' dugout and, like, everybody was trying really hard to keep a straight face. But that was the kind of game where, like, someone from one of those teams was going to have that moment, and it just turned out to be Kyle Schwarber and the Phillies who had that moment because it was a challenging day for the strike zone. Although I don't think Eric Lauer minded it at all. Um, no, a very, a I mean, large, 13 strikeout day, a pitcher strike zone, let's say, uh, generally speaking. So I very much enjoyed watching the Brewers try to keep a straight face while uh, watching that. And many of the hitters probably on the Brewers saying like, yeah, I feel you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was, I definitely, felt like a Kyle Schwarber is all of us moment there. <laughs> but, but also like a huge win for the Brewers to win a one nothing game. That's a big deal in that ballpark. Um, against the pitching Aaron has been fantastic yeah. against Aaron Nola. Yeah. Pitching Brewers pitching has been sensational. The starting pitching in particular. 
1.8 something ERA over the last dozen games, um, the starters. So they've been driving the bus, as Craig Council likes to say. You were just waiting to drop that. <laughs> yeah, I'll go. I'll go the the Schwarber meltdown too, just because. I think that's was a long time coming in that series or just in general. And what I thought was really cool is he was showing both sides because as a player, especially if you're in the bullpen and you're sitting behind the fence, 400 feet away, you can't always tell what's going on. And he was acknowledging the fact that both sides have been chirping at you all game. And so to anybody that's around, anytime you see an umpire, he's talking into one dugout, you know, and then the next inning he's talking to the other dugout. Things aren't going well for, for the umpire, <laughs> you know, and I don't know Angel Hernandez and I know that he, you know, trends on Twitter every four days, but whatever the re- something could be fixed or needs to be fixed. But I guess they're kind of like Supreme Court judges like you, like once you're an umpire, like that's it. You, you know, you have to leave on your own accord. T- Tim, what do you what do you think about the robo zone? If I if the robo cop zone comes, I'm coming out of retirement. So you have to find someone else yeah. to be on here. <laughs> Because <laughs> I threw a curveball that would nip the very front corner yeah. of the plate, and the catcher would catch it a foot and a half outside, and the umpire would be like, "No, I can't call that a strike." And I'm like, "You know who would? The Terminator. He would. He would call that a strike." I feel like I saw that on the last time I saw you pitch. It was for the Milwaukee Milkmen, and you came out and threw a bunch of innings off the street, right? <laughs> off the couch, yeah. And the <laughs> off the Brewers had a night game that night, so I went in. And did like, because it was Zoom world at the time, so you didn't have to be at the stadium to talk to players. We were doing it all on Zoom. So I did my Zooms at that ballpark and watched you throw all these curveballs, and the umpire just couldn't see it. Yeah, I mean. Or like at least see, couldn't see that it was a strike. I should be used to it, but I get mad, right? And I kick the dirt on the mound. But the problem is the Milkman mound was all turf, so I was just kicking these little rubber pellets everywhere, getting in my shoes. But yes, <laughs> if we get this automated strike zone, I'll I'll probably come back and throw my curveball. But I, I I don't know. I love the human element because it. Me too. You have to have it for for certain calls and for certain you know even flows of the game. But I think at the same time there could be like a earpiece they could throw in or something that just says, you know, hey hey, try a little harder, bud. <laughs> That's gonna help yeah, but everybody. Like to me, we've removed so much of the soul of the game in favor of technology, which is like, I get it. If technology is there, people want there to be replay because you know, the the technology is there. So everyone on TV is seeing one thing. You want the umpires to get it right. So I understand that. But with the strike zone, it, it just seems like that, that is part of the game. Like Tom Glavin is the guy that always, and I don't want to be like, get off my lawn guy about baseball. Cause (laughs) again, as Craig council says, he's a very wise man. Very often you have to be open to change in the game. Like the game does not stay the same and it, it hasn't throughout its history, even though in our minds we think it, it has, but I don't know, watching Tom Glavin kind of push that edge, that outside edge, like a little further, a little further, a little further inning by inning. I would be sad if all that went away in the game. So I don't know when you watch a game where it's, where the strike zone's tough, you kind of, your instinct is to say you want it to be robo up. But I, I, I would miss kind of that human element of pitching. I mean, you could say that about that's the, my two cents. You could say that about the DH too. Like you know, you kind of miss having those moments where pitchers hit bombs. You know, like chicks dig the long ball. Like great commercial. Yeah, but now it's even better because there still are scenarios where that can happen. Sure. Just they're that much rarer because you have to be in a situation where you remove the DH to a position, and then mm. you lose the DH. 
So, just saying, if you love it before because of its scarcity, now it's even more scarce. Yeah, it's like a but unicorn. <laughs> for me, my moment of the week had to be Woodruff in like full return to form. You know, Burns quickly after his brief uncharacteristic appearance came back to the Cy Young form we expected to him to. But after a kind of rough spring training and then a rough start, you know, Woodruff has that one good start, but he doesn't have the K numbers. And then he comes back against Pittsburgh and he goes six innings of one hit ball with nine strikeouts. And it was just good to see the workhorse, the staple of the rotation as the one, two, the like most important parts are making sure that Burns and Woodruff are those successful front end guys who get you wins as much as possible. And seeing Woodruff just have the punch out stuff again and seeing him actually get run support this year, it was all just great to see and something that I think is really promising for ensuring that the team gets off to a strong start like they now have after kind of a rough go of it in the beginning, partially due to some Chicago weather and a weird spring training. They're now, their rotation's now just full on running ahead and doing great. But I think the most important thing was making sure Woodruff had an appearance like he had against Pittsburgh. Well, yeah, like to, to me, it's when what I wrote that day is that when Burns and Woodruff are best, they're like pushing each other and they have this friendly rivalry where the one guy wants to outpitch the other. And I think that that's true now for, they want Freddie Peralta to join that. Um, Eric Lauer has joined that. Adrian Hauser has joined that. And when you're doing that kind of follow the leader thing, that's when they're definitely, but those two guys really do that a lot because they spend a lot of time together talking, pitching, playing catch, all that stuff. Um, so it, I agree with you that it was really big to get Woodruff back to form. And it goes back to something I think we talked about before. I'm fascinated this year more than, any other about how different players are so different in what they need to be ready. Like there's the Ryan Braun theory of spring training, which is like, you know, roll in, get like five at bats and be 100% good to go for a season. And there are pitchers. I feel like that are like that. Maybe Brad Boxberger is that guy, like even getting ready for a game. We were talking about this yesterday with Craig council, getting ready for a game. He throws like 10 pitches and he's like ready done. And some guys just get ready really quick and others need time. And Woodruff is a guy who needs time in a normal spring training. He said he always wishes there was like one more exhibition because he just needs that just to get that foundation under him. So I think it's not surprising that it took him a little bit. And now here he goes again, because he's uh, very good. Well, you look at the last five starts, uh, Monday, Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Wednesday, Woodruff, Last time out, six innings, no runs, two walks, nine Ks. Peralta, five innings, one run, two walks, six Ks. I wrote this down. I'm not coming up with it off the top of my head. <laughs> that would be very impressive. That would be cool. <laughs> I should have not said anything. Hauser, six, in, six innings, three runs, one walk, three Ks. Lauer, six innings, zero runs, one walk, 13 Ks. And Burns, last night, Monday, six and two-thirds innings, no runs, two walks, 11 Ks. I do the math. It's a one, two, three ERA in the starting five right there. 29 and two thirds inning pitched, four runs, eight walks, 42 Ks. That right there is, should be the highlight moment of, of the last five or you know, six days with the off day. That's incredible. And they're doing it all in different ways. And it, I mean, all except for Peralta's was a quality start. Uh, that right there is all you could ask for from a GM standpoint, a managerial standpoint, hey, go out there and give us a quality start. So when you start talking about this rotation, that's what they're doing. 
They're going out there and they're pumping these suckers out, and that's pretty dangerous. All you got to do is kind of add some offense. And it's led to this situation where even though we're early in the year where normally you're using your whole staff a lot, um, they're getting they're they're in a position where like Jake Cousins hadn't pitched for a week before he came out and threw uh in that one game Giants homestand. So I mean, that's something you don't expect to happen this early in the year is is to be looking for work for guys, but it's because of the starters have been pitching deep and covering a lot of really quality innings. So Yeah, is it safe to say the pitching is back on track at this point? I mean, the starting rotation looks like they're exactly where they were at the end of last year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tim? I think you start looking at each start, you know, if you go through all five or if you add Ashby in the mix, like somebody had a hiccup, right? Or there was two hiccups. I mean, that's a that's a perfect score right there. And it reminds me a lot of the 2011 team where you're sitting in the bullpen and you're like, well, sorry, Grinky went seven again. <laughs> you know, Randy Wolf went eight. Like, what are we doing? Sean Markham goes seven. And you're just like, what, what are we going to do? Hey, y'all want to play catch after the game since we have nothing to do, right? Because it was just <laughs> the same guys pitching every single time. So I can feel it a little bit for Cousins coming in, just trying to get your your boundaries a little bit of like, okay, well, I haven't, I haven't been out here in a while. I feel foreign because they were pitching so much. And then all of a sudden it's like screeching halt. Sorry about it. You have to throw bullpens on the side. I would say, I would say Freddie is the guy that still is, he has more ceiling, right? I mean, we've seen him pitch where he's like, he's like the no hitter watch guy for me last year, at least he'd get out into a game and just not give up any hits. Um, And he's not been that guy quite yet. So I think he's the guy that, that I think still is working into this a little bit, but the others have all had, you know, really terrific individual performances so far. Right. I mean, the starters haven't given up more than three runs since April 17th. That's how phenomenal they've been during that time frame. And I think the thing you see with Freddie, and I think we saw it later in his start last time, is how important the slider is to his success. And it really started to come back last time. I think along the lines of Woodruff, that's definitely a pitch that seems that it takes a little bit longer for him to get to the point where it was at when things started last season and hitters just were completely fooled by it. It now seems like he's getting to that point where he can just dominate hitters throwing that pitch alone. The slider is making a comeback, I think. Um, I talked to Freddie the first time. I I hadn't been in the Brewers clubhouse in years, (laughs) or at least when they've let me in there. And I was just asking him because he had two times off the bump because he threw Friday and then pitched the next Friday. And I just asked him, how do you, you know, how do you feel about that? And he was really excited that he got to work on his slider twice off the mound rather than let me see if I can get it right. And then you have to test it in the game, right? You get one bullpen. It's like, okay, well, I think it's there. So he had a chance to have two bullpens. So he said he felt really confident with it and then went out and threw, you know, five innings and struck out six. But uh, Woodruff too was commenting on his slider the other day. I was like, Hey man, how you feeling? He's like, I'm good. He's like through bullpen. He's like trying to tighten up that slider. And I'm thinking you got four or five pitches. Why are you singling this sucker out? So for whatever reason, I feel like the sliders coming, you know, you can call it a cutter for some of the guys, but that idea of, of that movement is what a lot of guys are starting to kind of gravitate towards. And I'm wondering why I'm trying to figure out why it'll take more conversations. So tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it's, it's probably a Chris hook question. If you would, enlighten us on, you know, that's getting a little dangerously close to their organizational strategies, which they don't like to share, but you're right. The slider is the pitch because you all up and down the organization, Ethan small um, coming into his first spring training was talking about the slider based on input from the brewers coming out of the draft. So it's definitely a pitch of focus in the organization. 
you know, maybe that helps explain Jake Cousins coming to the Brewers because he's got that killer slider. Um, so it, it, it's certainly a, uh, a pitch that's highlighted all up and down the system. I'm actually quite hungry now. I'll talking about all these sliders. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been talking a lot about the great things that went on this week before we get to, you know, maybe the lesser than great things. Let's focus on the pitching a little bit more and talk about Eric Lauer. Is he on the verge of a special year? Because Adam, since June 27th, this comes from our friend, Will Salmon. Eric Lauer has 99 strikeouts in a 223 ERA in the span of 97 innings. He has been fourth ace-like during that time frame. Yeah, from our other friend, Matt Pauley of the Brewers Radio Network, or the flagship, the Brewers flagship radio station, pointed out that going into last night, Lauer had a better ERA than Corbin Burns since last June, which is like, that's a very eye-opening stat given the way that Corbin Burns pitched on the way to winning the Cy Young Award. So Burns retook the lead with six and two-thirds scoreless last night. Um, he is on the verge of a breakup because he's a lefty who's throwing really hard. And you look at, you know, StatCast, I, I love the baseball savant pages because it kind of, you can look year by year and it breaks it down pitch by pitch, year by year. And you just look at his progression. I'm cheating by looking. 2018, four-seam fastball, 90. No, velocity is not everything, but here are the numbers. 91.2 in 2018, 91.8 2019, 91.5 2020. Now you see a jump, 92.6 last season. And this season, his four-seamer so far is averaging 93.9 miles per hour. So that's a significant jump in velocity. It's a pitcher coming into his mechanics, coming into his body, you know, just experience, all those things, confidence. And he, again, velocity is not everything. And I don't, I don't want to portray it as it is, but that's a very big deal when you have a, a lefty throwing power forcing fastballs with the rest of his mix. I think that is part of what's fueled his, his rise. And, and look, a lot of it is confidence too. He's a very, very confident pitcher going back to last season. Right. And I think when the Brewers acquired him in the Weicho trade, where it's it's Trent Grisham, a guy who is has a huge rocket strapped to his value in baseball at the time of the trade. And they get Luis Urias, who obviously, you know, is a top prospect in his own right, but at the time, uh, you know, was declining where teams who still had him her organizations that still had him in prospect list on the outside of baseball were moving him from top 20 to low 80s because he had some issues with contact as he tried to add more power to his swing things that are obviously significantly not an issue now and ended up not being quite what I think people expected them to be but I think people don't understand how important that Eric Lauer trade was for the Brewers on the other side of it they saw it as another lefty in the pen maybe a guy who can be a fist starter for a while but I think it's obvious now that they saw something special in him something they could fix to get him to the point that he is now well, you look at each individual starter and everything kind of gears towards the fastball in some variation, whether it's a two-seamer for Hauser or it's a cutter for Burns. Uh, Freddie Peralta with just his spin rate at the top of the zone. One thing that Eric Lauer does exceptionally well, and he proved this against the Phillies, a good Phillies lineup, was down and in fastballs up and away to righties. So he's going to face predominantly righties. And we saw this with Randy Wolf dating back. Like once you start facing lineup after lineup where they start putting righties out there, you just get really comfortable with them. And you almost sometimes pitch better to them than you do lefties. 
So he has a plan, and that plan is fastballs down and in, the cutters up under the hands, and and fastballs up and away. And for whatever reason, his arm path makes it really difficult for hitters to pick it up. Whether it's, am I going to swing underneath this ball, or can I hit it? And they because of the late movement with the, the cutter, uh, they have to make the decision so much quicker. And, it, you know, the, the velocity does play, a, you know, a factor in there. The harder he throws, it is going to be less time for them to sit there and go, OK, am I going to try to pull this ball or am I going to leave it alone? And I think that's the factor. He has learned where to put his stuff. And I think the Brewers allowed that to happen. They saw what they had in the trade and they said, we can maximize it. He has to buy into it. And I think that's where the confidence comes from, Adam, is he is going, I know where to put this ball because this is where I have the most success. So you take all the all the, I guess, the peripheral stuff, this, you can shove it to the margins. You just sit there and say, stay out there. I'm going to focus on where my successes lies. Because as a pitcher, when you're out there on the mound and it doesn't go your way for a second, you think, okay, I got to abandon everything. And he doesn't do that. He'll sit there and throw that exact same pitch, try to hit that exact same spot on each of these hitters because he knows that's where the success is. Well, I was just going to jump in because you mentioned Randy Wolf twice. Sorry. I have two Randy Wolf stories <laughs> for you. No, I love it. Randy Wolf was awesome. Two Randy Wolf stories. My favorite Randy Wolf moment ever was I was lucky enough to cover the All-Star game when it was in Anaheim, and I forget what year it was. Bo Jackson came back, and it was a big deal because when we were kids, Bo Jackson and I think Wade Boggs hit back-to-back homers to start an All-Star game, and it was like a big deal. So Bo Jackson, we were like on Bo Jackson watch, and I got to interview Bo Jackson, which was like the coolest thing ever. But Randy Wolf, his brother Jim Wolf was umping, I think calling balls and strikes in that All-Star game, and I ran into Randy Wolf in the stands in a Jim Wolf umpiring jersey, <laughs> which I thought was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like brotherly support in an um, umpire jersey. Is that jer- it's a jersey? Costume? Right? A shirt? No. Whatever. <laughs> he was dressed. And as we the- just speaking of Jim, we just saw him this weekend. Exactly. But we never saw him in a Randy Wolf game <laughs> because that would be very unfair. Yeah. Okay. My other favorite thing was Randy Wolf's neighbor was Uncle Rico from. Um, Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. I forget the actor's name. John I Grice. know the actor's name. Okay, so I Tim, know were you on the team when yeah, he would come friends. out to spring training? We, we call all the time. No, we, uh, I don't know. We He came two years in a row and, you know, we got a picture in front of my locker. He's like holding a football. You know, it's got the headband on. He is awesome. Throw that football over He's, them mountains, yeah. which in Phoenix, it's like you can see the mountains and try to throw <laughs> that football over them mountain. But like when you guys would be out on the field, he would hang out with the writers because what else was he going to do to kill the time? So we got to hang out with him a bunch and got to know him a little bit. And it was so those are my two favorite Randy Wolf things. All right. Well, guys, we got to get to break when we come back. Trivia continues. Uh, you know, I, have I was heard bailed there was some out last week by Sophia. <laughs> I right? heard. Yeah, you got some help last week. So yeah. we're going to come back and. We're going to learn some fascinating things about the history of pretzels, so stay tuned. And we're back. It's on the most important day of the year. It's National Pretzel Day. And you know, every day can be a little hard here, but Pretzel Day, Pretzel Day is pretty good. And I completely butchered that quote, but I think a lot of people at least know the direction I was going in. Stanley, but because it's National Stanley from the I did not know this fact. I had a pretzel this morning in Baltimore, Maryland, at like eight ten in the morning. There you go. This is weird, guys. I just had a pretzel. I'm not joking. (laughs) Uh, I didn't have a pretzel, but I'm going to say I did because I just don't want to not fit in. Wow. Okay. But (laughs) since it's pretzel, we're also healthy. That this is our breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. Like what doesn't have a line? 
Since it's pretzel day, we're doing pretzel trivia. Sophia, according to some, heroically stole a point on Adam's behalf last week. So he leads Tim in the season competition. That's a great issue with the word stole. I think she did a fantastic job. And uh, I'm going to take that point and feel no guilt. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) I forgot where I even got a point. (laughs) I think I failed every uh, I, turn. I think it was on the week I was gone, the first week. Oh, okay. Yeah. But remember, guys, this is Family Feud style. Dun, 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 get dun, it right, dun. and you'll get a point. Get it wrong, and your opponent can try to steal the point. Okay. Adam's going to start us off. Adam, are you ready? No, because I'm terrible at this, but I'm going to try my best. <laughs> Adam, which state produces and consumes the most pretzels per year? New York, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Illinois? Uh, that is New York. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Illinois? It's got to be Pennsylvania, right? In Philly, they sell pretzels on every street corner. Oh, look at that. The answer is Pennsylvania, which produces about 80% of the United States pretzels. I actually knew that. Philadelphia is yeah. also the top pretzel city. Pretzels the average and Philly resident ice. eats about 12 pounds of pretzels per year. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm prob- yeah pretzels so and right water ice. Every corner in Philadelphia, you get a pretzel and you get a water ice. Yeah. Well, apparently you've been eating pretzels in the wrong state. Now, question two for Tim. What is the official term for pretzels without salt? Baldies, plain, naked, or glossies? Baldies, plain, naked, or glossies? I'm going to say... I think it's one, but I'm going to say plain. Plain. Okay, it's uh, it's baldies. Oh, no! I took the chance to steal from Adam! I'm a monster! (laughs) You're That's so good. I, come I was back. gonna say glossies. I was gonna say glossies. So I will be an honest person in the to, to maintain the integrity of this game a throughout baldies? the season. Yes. I, I was gonna say naked. Like give me the naked pretzel. Uh, I the problem is at a three to one lead, I I rigged the system because I want to make sure that Tim has, doesn't fall too far behind. So and it has nothing to do with me completely having all the rust built up in the world. I'm the bike in the back of the garage you haven't taken out in ten years. At this point today, well, you haven't You're doing great, man. I'll pump your tires. I, I, I legitimately was going to guess glossies because okay. I did have a what, what, what was it called? Baldies? Yeah, was Baldies. It? The Anderson Pretzel Bakery in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, filed a trademark for Baldies in 1955. Give me a give me a point for this because you mispronounced the city. It's Lancaster, not Lancaster. Ooh. Okay, Lancaster. Yeah. Sorry, and I we as Wisconsin rude. get so upset when. <laughs> People pronounce our cities wrong. Well, the only reason I know that is I played for an independent ball team there, the Lancaster Barnstormers. So that's how I knew right. the pretzel question, the first one. Yeah. All right. And I said, I, I, we were doing a meet the team thing, and I was like, hey, I'm so happy to be here in Lancaster. And everybody was like, <gasps> I was like, what, what did I do? <laughs> Record scratch. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, it's pronounced yeah, Lancaster. That, I said, okay. Noted. I, I've seen that moment happen a thousand times when talking about Wisconsin cities. So I know exactly. Hey, what let's you're do a whole about. segment where we just butcher the name. Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll be great. And good news. Uh, I think the Philadelphia brewer population is probably pretty low. So I could get away with or Pennsylvania brewer population is pretty low. So I can get away with that one. Sure. But now let's get back to talking baseball uh, because we had a great series in Pennsylvania where the brewers took two of three. Tim. Why don't you give us your stat of the week for the season so far and tell us why that's important. Ooh, stat of the week. This is a, this is a nail-biter, you guys. I don't think you're ready for this one. The Brewers are – you just want the last week, right? They're tied for fourth in all of MLB, but in the last week, they've had three sacrifice flies. 
And you might be saying, oh. well, that seems kind of ridiculous. But <laughs> yes, it is. But it won them a game. And it was two RBIs in another game that they lost, which I love that kind of stuff. I love the small ball. And then here's another one. This one trumps that one because I just find this fascinating as a guy that was a pitcher that tried to get ground balls. Brewers are the only team in the last week that have not grounded into a double play. Wow. Oh, so a little bit of situational hitting, a little bit of not getting, you know, giving away free outs. So I thought that was kind of interesting. All right. A little bit different of a Brewers team than we're used to seeing in Milwaukee because normally it's a swing heavy, not a situational baseball hitting team. I think a lot of fans would tell you from the last decade or so. So maybe we're seeing a little mindset mindset change with the new hitting instructors. Adam, what's your stat of the week? Well, just, uh, just to weigh in on that for a second, we actually talked with council yesterday about um, this is just baseball right now. Like, no one's hitting home runs um, for whatever different reason you want to say. The baseballs themselves, the short spring again, the early season weather, the game offenses, home runs and offense are suppressed right now. So at some point, our team's going to start thinking about more situational style of play, which teams have kind of gone away from because analytics have shown that the home run wins you games. And that's why teams have like talked about launch angle and you know, hitting for power and hitting the ball hard and exit velocity and all that stuff. So that is sort of, is the game at a tipping point right now where it's going to swing towards this kind of situational style if pitching continues to be as dominant as it is. So my two cents on that. My stat of the week, my number of the week. It's actually for the season though. Well, whatever. It's zero. That is the number of roster moves the Milwaukee Brewers have made 17 games into the season, which is, the most shocking stat, I think, of my entire career covering this team, especially in the David Stearns era where how many times has it been opening day, one game, and then a roster move? Like G-Man Choi comes to mind where he like won a game in uh, San Diego on opening day and was part of a roster move the next day. This is a, a very roster move heavy, uh, active roster management is what they call it, type of team. And look, the asterisk is that rosters are huge to start this season. They're 28 because of the circumstances of this year um, and having added one to what we used to think of as normal a couple of years ago. So it's, I'm fudging a little bit, but I still think it's kind of fascinating that they haven't made a single move. And, and part of that is um, that the, the pitching has been pretty good and they haven't had those kind of games where you blow out the bullpen a couple of days in a row um, even with a large bullpen, teams are having to make moves. Well, so I'll say this. The reason that's probably a big deal is bec- between the short and spring training, uh, like looking at injuries, right? Nobody's nobody's had an injury thus far, you know, knock on wood. I'm not superstitious, but that's what that's what they're doing. They're staying healthy. That's a, yeah. a tribute to the strength and conditioning staff. That's a, a testament to the athletic trainers. And then at the same time, it's the pitching staff going so deep into games. You know, if they were going yeah. three game, you know, three innings every outing, you're going to have to be making a whole bunch of moves in that bullpen to to just get through all those innings, regardless of having you know an extra man or two down there. So I, I think that is that is pretty extraordinary. It's not as good as no double play ground balls. No, no, <laughs> I feel like an Nothing's idiot, Adam. Thanks. But <laughs> next week we're going to we'll talk. This stat's going to end because uh, by next week's pod we will have, well, maybe. I don't know if we'll have the moves yet. Maybe we'll be waiting on the moves. But teams, 
have to go back down to 26 What's after right. the games of Sunday, right? Monday, Tuesday, And actually, Thursday, some breaking Wednesday. news before the pod today was that they're actually not going to enforce the 13 roster or 13 pitcher restriction. It's now going to be 14 pitchers up until May 30th. Okay. So they're giving some flexibility to that through the end of the year, which I think is something that does benefit the Brewers and how they like to use their team. Good. Man, yep. forget my email. Uh, they're asking me, like, what do <laughs> Finally, you... Finally, Tim, yeah. the league is listening well, to good. You. At least it goes somewhere. <laughs> I have another stat that I just found fun because I was wondering as I sat there yesterday for one game at American Family Field, has there ever been a one-game homestand? Because some teams have that, right, where you get a rain out and then, like the Cubs, for example, will sometimes have to stop back at Wrigley for one game against another team. It's not unprecedented. But with the Dome, we don't have that. But the answer is yes, there has been a one-game homestand. It was in 2001. The Brewers and Cardinals opened a, a, a series, a homestand, and then the next morning was September 11th, and the game shut down for a couple of weeks um, and then resumed. So that, in the books, is a one-game homestand. So I thought that was a little – that's a more quirky one, but um, – one of those rare things that other teams experience, but we don't in Milwaukee because of that big, beautiful dome. Now, I'm an optimist, and I always like to keep my Brewers fandom hopes high. Uh, first off, let me address that, because that's incredibly interesting. And kudos on the research, Adam. Like, no, no, cow. Andrew you Grumman can... and the Elias Sports Bureau. <laughs> oh, Andrew Grumman. Grumman of the Brewers PR department, who's doing this Pittsburgh series while Mike Vassallo recharges his batteries. So shout out to Grumman. <laughs> Yeah, way to go, Grumman. We all appreciate you a lot, and I hope you know that. Anyway, as I was saying, I love to be the optimist. And I, as we kind of get, as a fan base, sunken down in how the offense has been performing, and we'll get to that later, I wanted to throw out an optimistic number, at least for one performer, in terms of what they've been doing, and that is 663. That is the expected slugging percentage for Rowdy Telez, who's having one heck of a season so far. I mean, the guy isn't even having his highest hard hit percentage. It's 40.5, which has actually hit the second lowest since 2018, which shows that there's only room for upward movement, and he's been hitting the heck out of the ball. So, you know, in a team that has struggled offensively, yeah, he only has the 213 average, but when he comes up there, he's been producing pretty consistently and performing with some of the best in the league when it comes to his numbers. So I think that's such an offensive highlight that it's something I wanted to point out. Like there are good things happening offensively for the team. And it's not just Rowdy. There's other members of the team who are having success. I think we're seeing a very good season from Keston Hira so far in terms of what he's done in the past. It's been uplifting and promising in terms of what he's been doing. Um, so just a little bit of nugget to say, like, hey, there's some good things happening on this team because the Brewers have a team OPS of 600. And that tends to be upsetting a lot of the fan base. Adam, how concerned are you about the offense? Well, I would just say that, again, as I said a little earlier, I feel like we've all been here before looking at these numbers early and being discouraged about the Brewers offense. And then it's, you know, it's come around. Last year it came around with the addition of Willie Adamas, and then it was a pretty productive offense for a big chunk of last season when they were really rolling through June, July, and August. And then the lights kind of went out for whatever reason late, um, which has been debated a ton. So 
I don't know. I, I, I think they feel like they have, again, they have all this advanced data that helps them predict what's going to happen over the course of a season. And Mark Atanasio, when he spoke to us in spring training, shared that their, their internal assessment of what they have is that it's a top half offense. He broke down the numbers left versus left, right. Um, and it was, you know, top, both top 15. And when you have a really, really good deep pitching staff, that's plenty good in order to win a lot of baseball games, get in the postseason, and then see if you can be hot at the right time in the postseason. So, you know, I, I would say wait for the summer to come before deciding what kind of offense this is. And then wait to see what additions are made because, again, a big deal was made of leaving flexibility to add wherever they have needs. And surely some things will happen that will open up some needs for hitter and They've shown before that they'll go out and get that hitter. So I don't I don't think it's panic button time. I do think it's, you know, it's more discouraging than not right now. But I but I do think it just requires it's one of those that that they should be given more time to see before everyone decides what kind of offense they are. Mm, Tim, how do you feel about the offense's performance so far? Well, I think there's like Adam alluded to earlier in the show, talking about with the home runs down across the board, finding new ways to win. And it, that's called baseball. Baseball, you can put together whatever team you want and you don't know what, how it's going to perform. I think that's what I love about it is because there's so many factors. You can't, you know, you, you, you want to put a stat on it the best you can. You can't really figure it out. But I, I think that practical moves they can make. I mean, let's talk Tyrone Taylor. Tyrone Taylor is first. He's tied first on the team in doubles. He has four and he's done it in 28 at bats. Yelich, Renfro and McCutcheon had twice as many at-bats to get to four doubles. So that right there could be a move. They need to get Tyrone Taylor out there, let him do some damage. I mean, there's just uh, Hunter Renfro in the last seven games, six hits, two homers, batting 254 runs and three RBIs. And, you know, they're stealing some bases. And that, I, I think there's, they, they have to find a different way to get around the home run. The home run's awesome, but like I will say this forever, you cannot plan on the home run. You can go the offseason, go get the biggest hitters in the game and put them out there. And they're all going to be like, yeah, I'm going to hit 30 or 40 home runs this year. Well, guess what? There's pitchers on the mound that are going, I will let you hit a single. I will walk you. I will let you hit a double. I will let you hit a triple. But my whole goal is to not let you hit a home run. And if you're trying to hit a home run and all they're trying to do is not get you to hit a home run, more than likely you're going to get out. So to me, it's just a, a shift change. And I think we've already seen it. I think we've seen it in the sacrifice flies, some of the situational hitting, Lorenzo Cain going uh, opposite side of the infield to get a run in in Chicago. Like we saw it early on. And this is stuff that we didn't see till late May, like Adam said, when Willie Adamas came and suddenly, hey, let's get the runs in whenever we can, because all that matters is getting four runs. Last year, that was the big stat. The Brewers score four runs. Their record was incredible. Best in baseball. Uh, this year so far, they are nine and one when they score four runs. So their whole goal shouldn't be, hey, let's just you know hit a bunch of home runs. Squeak across four runs. The, they're giving up 3.5 runs a game. Score four runs. And that right there is the difference maker. But you can't just rely on four home runs or one grand slam. But Tim, how concerned are you about the performances from some of the stars of the team, Willie Adamas, Christian Yelich, Colton Wong, individually? Is it just a matter of time before they break out, or is there a bigger issue that concerns you there? Yeah, uh, I Yelich right now is hitting the ball harder than like anybody, right? Like, isn't that mm -hmm. a stat? Literally, like, literally hitting the ball harder yes. than anybody. Um, so if he was batting three fifty, you'd be like, all right, everybody, let's go and try to hit the ball as hard as we can. 
And you know what? That may play next year when they start banning some of the ridiculous shifts. But for right now, if you know, the other day, look at Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds hit a 45-mile-an-hour triple. And Trout did it, I think, on Monday, where he just kind of dinked the ball to the right side and got a triple. So you start yeah, a weighing... a triple that bounced in the infield dirt. Yeah, and but that's what I'm getting at. I'm getting at it doesn't really matter how hard you hit it. And if you're hitting it really hard, and I'm not picking on Yelich, I think he's a phenomenal player. But at the same time, even last year, some of the guys that struggled, it, they were crushing the baseball. They were absolutely mashing the ball, and it goes right at somebody. So I'm saying... Do you continue to do that or do you sit there and go, you know what, maybe maybe walk up there with a wet newspaper. I remember I remember Joaquin Arias. You remember when he had such a great stellar run with the Giants? I think he was playing third or something, filling in. That's just a strange name that comes to mind because we always said this guy swings a wet newspaper, meaning he'll sit there and square a ball up and then it just dumps in front of the outfielders behind the infielders. And you're like, almost wanted to check his bat. Did he go to the plate with a broken bat to do this on purpose? <laughs> Which I have had teammates that have done that which is illegal, but I digress. I'm just saying it doesn't really matter the exit velo. You can just sit there and dink the ball all over the place and get a hit. You know, if that's what your goal is, if your goal is to get four runs, then I think guys are going to go up there and just start dinking the ball wherever they can. And, you know, I think hitting the ball as hard as you can with the shifts right now is a little overrated. First of all, there's a rule. You can't go to the plate with a broken bat. And number two, you've had guys do that on purpose. Yeah. We're in the trust tree. You want me to share? (laughs) I remember we were in, yeah. Sorry, this is the follow-up to my follow-up to the follow-up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're just going to keep you talking the rest of the show. <laughs> Good. I got my voice going this morning. No, um, uh, Eric Almonte, I was in, we were playing Tacoma. I was a starting pitcher. I don't remember what year it was, 2009-ish, 8-ish. And we were in the dugout, and he, he was crushing the baseball. And he broke his bat, his first at-bat of the series, of a four-game series. And he came back, and I was like, oh, man, that's a bummer. And he was like, what? So he spent, he was a DH at the time. So he spends the entire time before his next time up taping the bat up. But you can't go up there with tape on like above the handle, like wherever is considered the handle. And so he covered it up with pine tar. And he went up there and he swung, crushed the ball, and it just duck farted over second base for a hit. And he, I mean, we're all laughing because we're like, this is ridiculous. And he had some antics anyway, but... So next at bat, same thing. He comes back and he puts like smaller strips of tape around it to kind of bolster it and put pine tar over it and rosin just so you couldn't see it. And he ended up going something ridiculous. He had like 11 hits in the series. It was just phenomenal. And then finally, it was absolutely destroyed. (laughs) Like his last at bat in the series. It just was like seven pieces everywhere. Uh, But yeah, we found out later that you're not allowed to go to the plate with a broken bat. Wow, that is getting your money's worth out of a bat right there. Louisville Slugger. Uh, Wait. I don't know if it was or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we can't encourage the guys to go to the plate with a broken I'm not bat. Saying we that. I'm that. not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adam, how do you feel about the individual performances from some of the stars of the team so far? Uh, here's what I think. Um, I'm calling up stats again. Mo- As we sit here, uh, Willie Adamas leads the team with 62 at bats, McCutcheon 59, Renfro 57, Kane 30, you know, I'm dipping down now, Kane 35, Peterson 34, Narvaez 33. 100 at bats is, you, you don't want to look too much at numbers before 100 at bats. That's what I've been told for as long as I've been in Major League Baseball covering the sport, um, that nobody wants to seriously dive into the statistics until you have 100 at bats sample. So I would just 
we don't like patience in this sport or anything right now, but it is too early. Um, it's too early to decide. And I, I think Hunter Renfro is a great example. Early on, very few results. And then he had like a really nice week. And one really nice week changes the full outlook. I'll just say Willie Adamas is a guy I know that's gotten a lot of attention. The home run against the Giants was a big moment for him. He's been out there early, like every day with Ozzie Timmons, just taking tons of swings on the field. Kind of the Christian Yelich model where when he gets in a bad place, he likes to go out on the field to see it. Um, and that often can lead to some results. So that's been Willie Adamas over the last uh, couple of, at least the home games that that we've covered. Um, so it's just time. Be, be, be a little bit patient, and then let's talk about this in a couple of weeks. Right. And I think, actually, if we look down at the farm, there's a great way we can talk about how quickly that can change in Bryce Terang. April 19th, he was bat- slashing 196-262-83. Five games later, 302, 362, 413. That's how quickly that can change. He five goes games having, will do that for you, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, go five for five, and all of a sudden your numbers get boosted. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it it doesn't take much at this point in the season to take your line and make it from something that people think is miserable, unacceptable, blah, 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 and turn it into something very playable that or go back to the norm especially you look at Willie Adamas and I can't remember the last time I've seen a player having such obvious bad luck where he smokes a ball and it seems to that like the it always just finds the defender which is kind of what Tim was talking about earlier in terms of sometimes that's just how it goes and sometimes you got to find a way to play through that but when and, you and look that stuff at, stands out more in, in small samples, right? right. Like when, when it happens over the course of a week and there's only been two and a half weeks, three weeks of baseball, that all stands out. Jace Peterson's been that guy too, where he's been like just an unlucky hitter so far. In, in, right. And you look at the baseball savant page for Willie Adamas, he's expected batting average right now over a very small sample size is 275 with a slugging of 439, which is a pretty good season. And something I'd be very happy with from Willie Adamas. Same thing, you look at Christian Yelich, and he has some of the best numbers in baseball, and he has an expected slugging percentage of 483. So I think it's just one of those moments where patience is incredibly important right now. Colton Wong is the one where I look at, and I, I see one big discrepancy on his page, and that's his walk percentage. So obviously his there's something a little bit different to what he's how he's playing the game right now. But I think that's more of just starting the season off maybe uh, not in where you normally want to be as a hitter. And that's something where he has a 1.8 walk percentage. He's never had a lower than 5.9 in his career before. So I don't think that's something that holds up for Colton Wong. And as he finds what is normal for him, the success will come back because I don't think you go through this many seasons of being a professional ball player and have that much consistency through your life. And then suddenly, especially something like walks just disappear. We've seen speed disappear. We've seen power disappear, but Colton's game has been pretty consistent throughout this time. So I think once he finds that rhythm and finds that approach at the plate again, he's going to be significantly more comfortable and you will see this traditional success. And you look at Colton Wong's career and he's had He's been incredibly consistent. 
you've seen certain peaks, but where things peak in terms of like batting average, you see trade-offs in other things in his game. And he's been incredibly consistent as an offensive player. So when I look at him, quote unquote, struggling to start the year, I mean, he definitely is struggling to start the year compared to what he's used to. It's not something that terrifies me or scares me as a fan because you look at all the data and it all looks the same as it's been throughout his career. So you expect he'll eventually find his way as a player, which I think all we're trying to do is just say, for fans, patience is incredibly important at this or at the beginning of the year because some guys are still finding their way and bad luck is happening and that affects numbers greatly. So I, I don't think that this offense is really something that we should worry about at this point. Well, now I'll say this. I, we're, we're, like, we're the only ones I feel like that are – worried about it i looking at players players they all, all everybody always wants to do better if somebody was in the clubhouse batting 400 they're like i gotta make an adjustment so i can bat 500 that's just how baseball players think that's just their natural tendency is to try to get better and i think i've already seen that in a lot of these players especially wong he tried a, a sack bunt or not a sack bunt a, a, a drag bunt the other day like that that right there is a sign that a player goes okay whatever i was doing Maybe I'm not getting the results that I want. It's time to use the rest of the tools that I have in the toolbox. And so that right there is a great sign uh, when a guy's willing to kind of get out of his comfort zone because he did go from being the guy that was lead off all year last year. And now suddenly he's we got him in the nine hole at times. So, I mean, that's a big change. That probably is the reason for like affecting the walks. Um, now he's in a different role. He's coming up at different times. Um, but he is a very consistent player. He'll be fine. And I think this whole team is just laying a foundation. You look at the Cardinals. Cardinals were scorching red hot coming out of the gate, and then they've really slowed down and quieted out the last week or so. So I don't know. I, I It depends. You know, you, you want a team. We all want a team that hits all year long, but that just doesn't exist. And this is what happens sometimes. And I can see the signs of the Brewers laying a foundation that they're going to build off of going into May. Absolutely. And I think Adam said it before where, you know, we saw this team, granted it was a different team than the one that ended up hitting, but we saw this team struggle in April last year. And, you know, June through the end of August, their hitting was some of the best in baseball there, especially when they needed it. They could really put together runs. I get why the fan base is worried about it because of what we saw in the playoffs, but I don't think this is the time to worry. But now, what it is time for is another break. And when we return, we'll talk about the return of Luis Urias Wicho, the, the third baseman coming back to the team, hopefully soon, and the best burger in town. We'll be back in a second. All right, we're back. Guys, Luis Urias is coming back. He started his rehab assignments. He played a couple games in Biloxi. He had two hits, a double. Are you taking over or under for 790 OPS when Weicho comes back to the Brewers and takes over the starting third baseman? We're going to start with Adam for the rapid round. Dude, I need the number again. I missed it. 790 OPS, over or under? Um, I mean, I'll say over. I think he was a, he was a impact player for them last year, and the power came, and Again, I've said this before. I love the attitude he had of basically losing the shortstop job and then moving to third and like embracing Willie Adamas and vice versa. And Urias ends up having a great year. I love, I just love the adaptation that he showed. And I'll say over. 
Tim, how about you? 790 OPS over or under for Luis Urias? I mean, I know I'm a color analyst and I'm supposed to be in and around all those numbers, but I don't really know. I've never even thought about it. I would say I'll go over. I feel like if a hitter gets to have a little bit more less stressful at bats coming back from rehab in double A, um, I feel like that gives you a little bit more confidence. You feel really good. And then you kind of go into the big leagues rather than, hey, start it off. You know, there's no buildup, short spring training, all that. So, yeah, why not? We'll go over. Yeah, I'll go over too. Uh, his power looks promising. I really liked what I saw in uh, spring training and batting practice. I believe in Luis Urias. And I think when him and Willie are together, they just build each other up so much and they both perform exceptionally. Those two together just feel like they can take over the world. So I'm going to go with Luis Urias hitting over a 790 OPS. But Tim, sticking with your expertise, food, mm. pretzels. <laughs> What's your go-to pretzel dip? Pretzel dip? Uh, any any yeah, kind of beer, beer cheese, cheese. Beer cheese. Mustard. Yeah, icing. Yeah. No, no mustard. I'm not a mustardsman. Never have been. Uh, definitely beer cheese. Uh, I actually have had some good beer cheese in, in and around uh, some of the breweries. Are we allowed to talk about that? Or Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are allowed to talk about beer on this <laughs> Brewers Unfiltered podcast. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Adam, what about you? What's your go-to pretzel dip? My mother was born in Bavaria, and if I don't say mustard, she might not let me back in the house when I get, you know, next time I come over. So I, I will I will go with the uh, coarse grain mustard with a nice gigantic pretzel. There is, there are two things that my friends know about me when it comes to food, that I love a great French onion soup, and that if you can put honey mustard on it I will eat honey mustard with it so honey mustard is my choice for pretzel dip because I just love honey mustard and Adam stop making that face you're I'm making a face you can't see it but everybody I'm making it sounded like you're dipping your onion soup or whatever in mustard (laughs) is that what you said yeah (laughs) what you do is you dip your spoon in the honey mustard then you go straight into the french French onion soup yum nah I want to know how, where we get the technology. We've done a lot of things in this society, but but we still haven't quite mastered the piping hot pretzel at the ballpark. Like I want to get a pretzel that's piping hot and it's eh, 50-50. I think this is our our top scientists need to jump on. It's a wattage issue. You know, they stick it in a little warmer thing and it's just like a, it's like a light bulb and that's it. It's like (sighs) they screw it in a light bulb. It's just, they need a bigger light bulb. That's it. We need good. the world's best engineers to immediately get on the ballpark pretzel issue. Yeah. Big problem. Not the other issues, not like solving diseases <laughs> and stuff like that. Pretzels. Pretty now, yeah. Adam, if you could build a pitch arsenal around one Brewers pitcher, e.g. Burns' cutter, Devin's changeup, Hater's fastball, Freddie's slider, what are you picking? Ooh, I like this one. I will say I'm trying to pick something more obscure. No, I'm not. Burns' cutter is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And Pitching Ninja, our friend Pitching Ninja, the overlays have, like, given us a whole new window into, you know, the challenge of hitting a baseball. The overlays of Corbin Burns are, like, they're they're gross. They're crazy. So Burns' cutter is, is what I would choose. Dilly, what about you? Well, I'm a sinker ballsman, always was. I got to go with Hauser sinker. I think all yeah. the players <laughs> said that, right? They got interviewed. Like, if you could have one pitch from somebody on the team, who would it be? And they all picked Hauser sinker. And the reason is because, I mean, it's 
all you have to do is locate it anywhere down. Like it's not, it's not very specific. You can kind of miss and still get outs yeah. because, I mean, he throws a fastball more than anybody in Major League Baseball, and he has the weakest contact of anyone in Major League Baseball. And he throws the ball down, I think, third in all of Major League Baseball. There's a website I looked for some of this stuff. But yeah, like that's what I would go with because you, you, to replicate a cutter is so difficult. That's why there's not everyone doing it. You know, and everyone used to throw sinker because it was kind of easy. Well, now nobody's used to hitting a sinker. So here comes Hauser throwing one of the best ones in the game and having success on it. And you know what? It's it's easier to throw than the airbender or a 99 mile an hour, <laughs> you know, hater fastball. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm lazy. I want that sucker. The airbender would have been a good pick, too. Mm. But shout out to I'm, Will Salmon, because I think that was a Will Salmon story in The Athletic about... Um, Favorite pitch. Yeah, well, I was going to click it, and it was like, well, yeah, sign up, and you know, I don't want to pay money to do it, so I just waited for someone else to read it and tweet about it. Sorry, Will. <laughs> Poor Will. Oh. Just trying to make uh, it Please support local journalism <laughs> yeah, and uh, sports journalism. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go a little off the beaten path here, and a pitch that I've really, really enjoyed watching this year that I would love to build around is Ashby's fastball. Because holy cow, at 97, the movement on that thing is just astounding. That is a pitch where I think, uh, you know, as his location continues to improve, we all know that the Brewers pitchers, the way they develop pitchers is great. And we all know that like it feels like a matter of time before there's five aces in the rotation. It's, it's just something where I think it's so much fun to watch that pitch move. And it, it's so fast so much depth to it there it has so many things going for it though that's one that i'm just in love with obviously you have some of the best pitches singular pitches in the league on this team when you talk about burns's cutter devin's changeup, etc but yeah that's one where i just look at it and especially from a lefty i'm like how does that work it's so amazing bonus points for not picking one of the obvious ones i like it hey you know i do what i can I've been an Ashby stand for a while. You can go back and look it up. I've, I've called him future ace Aaron Ashby basically since he came in, and I talked talk to him about how he approached the game. I think that kid's just smart. But more importantly, back to food. As promised from last week, where can you find the best burger in Milwaukee, Tim? I, I, I don't know. I've had a lot of good ones. <laughs> I don't know. If someone knows where it is, please point me in the right direction. What about your go-to? What's your go-to? What's your safe burger pick in milwaukee anytime you can put a put an egg on a burger i feel like anywhere you can ask that pretty much anywhere you go i don't know i can't remember the last burger i've had in milwaukee is that bad oh is that the stadium yeah the stadium one's good yeah all right i'll save tim (laughs) thank you i'll save tim here (laughs) i didn't know we were supposed to do it i haven't even been to milwaukee like this last week i just got here last night and stood on the concourse and uh, hung out with fans all game well, there I will go. I will give a vote for Camino on uh, is that Walker's Point Fifth Award. <laughs> you, yeah, you, this is great, great segment. <laughs> Camino, great, great bar food kitchen right there behind the bar. Uh, great Brussels sprouts as the side. Definitely get the Brussels sprouts. And I will just give a shout out to we talked about him um, on a recent pod, Michael Bauman, one of my journalistic heroes growing up, and then got to work with him with MLB.com. We do a burger tour of Milwaukee. So we have hit a bunch of them. So, you know, Elsa's Burger, I love. Palomino, Oscars, 
Uh, Mason Street Grill has a great burger, but I, I will just say Camino is my number one because it's a great little spot and really, really good food no matter what you get. And they actually have pierogies too. I had pierogies there the other day, which was a good little uh, preview for coming to Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's my whole goal in Pittsburgh is to eat like a dozen pierogies. <laughs> which we there have to say, do we even say, I mean, Tim Dillard has uh, color commentary duties in this series. I don't yes. even think yeah. we've said that yet, which we definitely should plug. Yeah. That's why yeah. you guys can see me. I'm in the hotel room here, this fancy hotel here in Pittsburgh. I don't even know the name of it. We got here, you know, like one o'clock last night and I got this big curtain behind me. It looks like I'm Johnny Carson or something. So <laughs> these rooms are amazing. Yeah, I keep I waiting the- for something to emerge from that curtain, but it's just the window on the other side, yeah, I guess. Bigly huh? club. Like, yeah, well, with Tim, you always try to expect the unexpected, which then leads to <laughs> yeah. unexpected There's nobody behind here. It's a window. <laughs> I'm expecting Craig Kashan to like open up the... Brewers you know. live. Yeah. He sits Hi, there for 90 minutes yeah. just That'd for be, the that payoff. That would have been a good gambit. <laughs> uh, I always feel so put out because whenever we do this, our producer, Ezra Siegel, is a foodie. He loves to get these in because he knows all the best places and has like a, a probably some notebook somewhere with a thousand restaurants in it of the best places to eat. And then he, he asked this question. And I'm like, I've eaten at like five restaurants in all of Milwaukee, which is not accurate, My God. but I have not eaten as much in Milwaukee as I should have for being a guy who lives here because I've lived most of my life in Racine. So I don't often make a 40 minute trip for a burger when I can just get one in Racine. However, one that I'd always used to go to and get at Sundays after I finished working when I worked for the WISN 12 news is Sobelman's. So I'm going to go with yep. that. Uh, enjoy, always enjoyed their burgers. Was it was a great uh, little treat for me at the end of a long work. Ooh, week. I got one. So I'll go with that. I, Georgie Porgies is uh, in uh, in Oak Creek because I slept on a couch in Oak Creek last year, and I was a part of uh, Bill Schroeder's uh, like he headlines like a burger tasting contest. You know, people make burgers and we eat it. So I got to be a part of that last year, and a pretzel bun won. So I think that kind of is a culmination of everything we've done here today on this podcast. <laughs> they're, they're really tied a bow on this. That, that is good. That's a good job. Right there. And there you go. That's the type of neat bow wrapping you can expect on Brewers Unfiltered. And that's how we're going to end it. That's all we have. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow our hosts. You can follow Dim Tillard at Dim Tillard on Twitter and Instagram. Get Tim there and watch him on Brewers TV this week. I mean, you should watch us all the time when you can't get to the ballpark preferably come to the ballpark because games are awesome and then look for adam McCalvey at adam McCalvey on twitter instagram and facebook read his articles on brewers.com of course make sure you're following the brewers on instagram twitter and tiktok and we'll see you next week 